日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へレッツゴー Hey everybody welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast this is Chris And today we'll be talking about tea in Japan, or I should say the history of tea in Japan, or more specifically the early history of tea in Japan. And in honor of this episode, I am drinking some low quality Kyushu Bancha. It's a type of green tea in honor of the topic. And before I get started, I just want to thank the patrons on Patreon for your support. You guys are keeping this podcast afloat. And if any of you other listeners are interested in helping out the podcast, please go over to patreon.com slash samurai archives to see the various ways that you can support the podcast. All right, so with that said, let's get started. So I'm sure you've all heard the phrase for all the tea in China. Well, there's a lot of tea in Japan too. And you might be wondering, how did it get there? Well, who am I kidding? I'm sure you're not because you might not think that tea would even make for a very interesting topic. But It kind of is, and that's why I'm looking at it today. The focus of this episode is obviously going to be tea in Japan, but before I dive into that, I should give a basic history of tea in Asia. To talk about tea history in Asia, we have to go back through the mists of time to legends and folklore since there's really no true or verifiable source. I mean, tea's been around for a long time. The legends say that tea was discovered by Emperor Shen Nung, or Shen Nong, I guess, depending on where you look. I'm not really clear on the spelling or pronunciation. I only took a semester of Chinese in college, but Shen Nong was emperor in China around the year, or I guess I should say specifically the year 2737 BC. But apparently he was having water boiled to drink and some leaves fell from a bush into it and it tasted yummy. So boom, tea was born. Now, I doubt the reality was that simplistic, but that's what the legend says. And honestly, if I was an ancient Chinese emperor who was having water boiled from my royal palate and some dirty leaves fell into it, I'd probably order my lackeys to dump that shit out and start over. But Shen Nung didn't. And it's a good thing, too, because tea history might have been changed forever. Although, as an aside, another legend says that the Bodhidharma fell asleep while trying to meditate and got so annoyed that he couldn't stay awake and he cut off his own eyelids. And when the eyelids hit the ground, they grew into tea plants. And I, I guess there's a metaphor in there somewhere, but regardless, apparently tea became popular in China during the Tang Dynasty around the 8th century. And as we know, it's still popular today. But it was around this time in the 8th century that traveling Buddhist monks brought tea to Japan. Now, that being said, there's archaeological evidence of tea in China back as far as the 2nd century BC. So, archaeology has it around the 2nd century BC, legend has it around the 2nd millennia BC, and I guess historical records have it around the 8th century AD, or at least as far as popularity is concerned. But to look briefly a little more at the history of tea in China, and there's other podcasts out there that cover this in great depth, so I'll just give a quick overview. Everything goes back to the author of Cha Jing, or the classic of tea, Lu Yu, also known as Lu Hongjian. So this Lu Yu was a Tang Dynasty scholar slash official who wrote The Classic of Tea in the 8th century. It seems that this is the book that originates the story of Emperor Shen Nung's discovery of tea. And in this book, tea is referred to as the Grand Plant of the Southern Regions. And it's believed that this tea came originally from the coastal areas of India and China, but even that isn't clear. One theory is that tea moved eastward from India with the movement of Buddhism, 
But it's also just as likely that tea drinking started at multiple points along the southern coast of Central and East Asia. Point being, we really don't know if tea was brought to China or if it's indigenous. The earliest actual historical mention of tea in China seems to be the Han Dynasty book called Tongyue. It's a work of fiction, but it mentions tea in it, and this was about 59 BC. Scholars are pretty sure tea had been around for longer than that, but this is the earliest written source, apparently. Anyway, tea gained permanent prominence in China around the 8th century. The first reliable historical record in Japan, on the other hand, that talks about tea, tells how Crown Prince Saga was served tea by the monk Kukai in 806 AD, and in some versions of the story, he gave the monk his royal outer robes. A bit of a strange trade, but mm, I don't know. Another story from 815 AD says that the now Emperor Saga had tea with the abbot Eichu at the Bonshakuji Temple on the shore of Lake Biwa and gave him his robes. So either giving out royal robes was a thing or the two stories got mixed up at some point. Not really sure. Suffice it to say, Emperor Saga was all about tea and poetry and the first historical figure recorded as drinking tea in Japan. He apparently also put out an imperial decree in the following year to grow tea. Like I said, he was a fan. It must be said, though, that although it's likely that tea came to Japan before all this, and probably in the 7th century, this is the earliest actual historical record of tea in Japan. There are sources later that talk about tea earlier than 806, but those were written hundreds of years later. For example, one source talks about Emperor Shomu inviting 100 monks to read a sutra at the imperial palace, after which he treated them to tea. But this was written long after the fact. Another source written way after the fact states that Gyoki was one of the first tea cultivators in Japan probably in the late 7th or early 8th century. So tea in the Heian period was basically a high-class drink that didn't really filter down to the grubby dirt farmers and fishmongers of the time, probably due to its rarity, and it being an exotic foreign drink from China. I mean, this was the Heian period after all, when the Japanese were doing all they could to mimic all things China and Chinese, so... Anyway, the founder of the Tendai school of Buddhism, Saicho, who was also the founder of the Endakuji Monastery on Mount Hiei, was another monk who brought tea to Japan from China around this time and planted tea on the slopes of the mountain, uh, at least until it was presumably all burned away by Nobunaga in 1571. And I don't want to veer off course, but the monks of Endakuji got in Nobunaga's way, and he basically burned every temple, statue, gate, bell, tree, toilet man, woman, and child on the mountain, and presumably all the tea on the mountainside right along with it. Now, this came up in episode 142, but for some reason, tea seems to have fallen out of favor in Japan by about the 10th century, and it seems like more or less disappeared until the Kamakura period. And it's unclear why, but tea dropped out of Japanese culture for about two or three hundred years. The most likely reason that I could find is the fall of the Tang dynasty in China, and that tea in Japan never really got beyond the monasteries and upper-class hoity-toity rich folk aristocracy. I mean, there are occasional mentions of tea in Tendai Buddhist writings as a medicine during this time, but that seems to literally be the only mention of tea for a few centuries. So tea basically just dropped off the map. It was gone. Until it was reintroduced, or repopularized maybe, by the monk Eisai, the founder of the Rinzai School of Zen and the author of the book Kisa Yojoki, or Drinking Tea for Health. And Eisai brought tea back to Japan from a trip to China in 1191. Eisai and another Japanese monkey met in China, by the name of Chogen, kicked off the new cultural exchange with China during the Kamakura period, and Eisai is credited with making tea a permanent fixture in Japan, basically from that point forward. He brought back tea seeds from China and planted tea in Hizen province, and later in northwestern Kyoto, and boom, tea took off during this period. 
Part of the popularity was due to monks who drank tea to stay awake while meditating. And in fact, some monks wrote specifically how tea, quote, helps to conquer the demon of sleep. And apparently as a postscript to a sutra, one monk wrote, After seven cups of tea, I have conquered the devil of sleep and burned nine wicks in my lamp to accomplish the copying of this sutra. And apparently there's even a tea kettle that dates from around this time that has inscribed on it what is referred to as 10 benefits of tea, which are 1. Divine protection of the Buddhas 2. Harmonizing of the five organs 3. Filial piety 4. Expunging desire 5. Prolonging life 6. Banishing sleep 7. Freedom from morbidity 8. No ill effects from regular use. 9. Divine protection of the Shinto gods. And lastly, 10. Equanimity in the face of death. So that's a pretty impressive list. I I don't know, not really sure how all that matches up with reality, but that's what was written on the tea kettle. It's also interesting to note that this new tea culture was basically a restart. So what I mean by that is it probably didn't involve much of the original tea culture from the Heian period, and also probably didn't even involve much of the tea that was planted during the Heian period, and, you know, it was probably still presumably around. So this was an actual reintroduction of tea to Japan from China, including new strains of tea, new cultural transfer from China, things like that. So it's a strange and interesting aspect of tea. It seems that all of the tea strains and the tea culture that had been established early on in the Heian period was just lost to history, and then replaced with this new wave of tea. But anyway, uh, another big reason tea took off at this time, or at least I like to imagine it's a big reason, is that Asai gave tea to the shogun to help with his massive hangover in the year of 1214. Here's the quote. The shogun was taken a bit ill after several days of heavy drinking, and various attendants attempted to treat him. This was not so serious, but was from an overindulgence in wine the previous evening. The priest Asai, who had come to perform incantations, learned of the situation, and brought a bowl of tea from his temple, saying it was good medicine. He also asked the attendants to give the shogun a scroll of writings about the virtues of tea, and the shogun was said to have been greatly pleased. So Asai sold the shogun some snake oil and was able to put tea back on the map. And in that same episode, he also gave the shogun a copy of an essay he had written called Essay Praising the Value of Tea. So he definitely took full advantage of the situation. And this monk Asai is an interesting guy. He basically believed that the world was at an end times of sorts, and that tea was the only thing that would bring humanity through it. He was a believer in the Buddhist concept of ages of law. Basically, they believed that there were three ages of the Dharma. The age of the correct law, age of the semblance of law, and age of the latter law. This concept came from parts of the Buddhist canon called the Tripitaka, which was comprised of three types of law. The first was the Buddha's teachings, the second was his discipline, and the third was the theological or philosophical proofs of his thought. So during the first age, all three of these would exist in the world. In the second age, believers would continue to have the capacity to follow the forms embodied in the first two parts, but those who understood the philosophical rationale would disappear, leaving only the semblance of Buddhism embodied in the first two. In the final stage of the law, the teachings would remain, but discipline would also vanish, making this an era of, and I quote, strife, upheaval, and natural calamity, and what Asai referred to as the latter degenerate age. In Japan, it was widely accepted that this quote, degenerate age, or the third stage, would arrive in the seventh year of the Ajo era, in the year 1052 AD, about a hundred years before Asai was born. 
So basically, Asai was uh, an apocalyptic prophet in a way, I guess. He believed that humanity was living in a spiritual and potentially literal apocalypse, and that tea was the thing that was going to get humanity through it. And I think he probably felt justified in his beliefs by contemporary events. The Hogan disturbance in 1156, the Genpei War from about 1180 to 1185, plenty of death, bloodshed, and calamity to go around. And I guess you could sum it up by basically saying that Asai was essentially the Japanese Johnny Appleseed of the tea world. So what does this all mean for tea? Well, having traveled and studied in China, Asai developed the Confucian idea that the human body was a gift of heaven, and it was a person's duty to live a long, healthy life and to do as heaven decreed. But in this latter degenerate age of the latter law, the spiritual world was cut off from man. So he decided that tea was the thing that would cure all spiritual and worldly ills. That's what drove him to promote tea with his writings and drove him to spread tea culture all over Japan. Now, here's an interesting quote from one of his writings that I found in a Monumenta Nipponica article from 1981 by Theodore Ludwig. Probably superstitious nonsense, but it showed that Asai at least bought into what he was selling. There is nothing like drinking tea for strengthening the heart and dispelling illness. Among the five organs, the heart plays the role of sovereign. And the taste of tea is superlative among all things, that is to say... Bitter taste is chief of the various tastes. Accordingly, as befits superlative rank, the heart loves bitter taste, and further, when the heart becomes healthy by using bitter food, the other organs can also become healthy. If you have eye trouble, for example, you should realize that the liver is weak. Since the liver loves acid taste, you should drink acid medicine to cure eye trouble. But when the whole body becomes weak and life energy is depressed, you should realize that the heart is weak. Since the heart loves bitter taste, your spirit and energy will be restored if you drink bitter tea. Now that's just good science. But essentially I think what he's saying here is that tea is basically a cure-all. I'd say that the core of his philosophy is something like, healthiness is next to godliness. And he believed that tea was the salvation that everyone needed in these dark times. Asai often talked about how the Chinese lived longer and healthier lives than the Japanese, which he attributed to tea. I might attribute it to all the sake drinking everyone did in Japan, but... I don't really know how much boozing was going on in China at the time to compare. Suffice it to say, it's quite likely that Asai possibly single-handedly kicked off the Japanese acceptance of tea. I mean, it would have probably caught on eventually, but as it stands, I think Asai can take most of the credit. And hey, he lived to be about 75 in an age where the average adult probably was lucky to make it to 45, so he must have been doing something right. And Asai can also be credited with tying tea drinking to Buddhism in Japan. Or retying it, I guess, since it had that connection early on until it was lost. But I guess to sum up Asai and his whole connection to tea, tea really kicked off hard in the 13th century after he wrote his book, Kisa Yojoki, and everyone got in on the tea train. Priests, warriors, aristocrats, everyone. Well, except for the peasants, at least not yet. But I'll get to that. Another figure who looms large in the history of tea in Japan is the 13th century monk Dogen, who was the founder of the Soto Zen sect. Dogen lived roughly around the time of Asai. He was born when Asai was around the age of 60, so basically about two generations removed. But records indicate that he actually met Asai when he was age 14. So anyway, like Asai, he also studied in China, and in addition to bringing back Soto Zen, he also did a lot of writing on tea. He didn't really spend much time on the health benefits of tea like Asai did, but he was the first to incorporate the ceremonial use of tea in various formal Zen Buddhist ceremonies. So here's an example. First, the individual responsible for tea will strike the sounding board before the monk's quarters. When he does, the assembly will place their hands, palms together, bow once in thanks, and take their seats. The one who is to prepare the tea will proceed to the center brazier and light incense. 
there should not be more than nine people assembled at this time. When the small sounding board inside the monks' quarters is struck, there will be a bow and the tea bowls distributed. Thereupon, the server will move around the room preparing the tea. This assembly will then raise their bowls in presentation and drink the tea. When finished, they will bow and collect the tea bowls. Finally, the chief of the monks' quarters will express thanks to the person who prepared the tea. So this is basically the first time you see tea ritual in Japan, sometime in the early to mid-13th century, and Zen monasteries specifically were at the forefront of developing the formal Buddhist ceremonies involving tea. The aristocrats, on the other hand, took tea to a, a whole new level, which I'd call wild opulence by the 14th century, with lavishly decorated tea chambers with chairs draped with the skins of exotic animals like tiger and leopard skins, and this is a sharp contrast to the simplicity that the tea ceremony was boiled down to later in the 16th century. No pun intended. Aristocrats would hold lavish tea parties where they'd have tea tasting games where you try to figure out the region of the tea you're drinking. There are two terms involved in the tea party scene. There's honcha and hicha, which more or less literally means real tea and not tea, respectively. But in practice meant that the high quality tea from Togano and later Uji versus the lower quality tea. So basically, it was like a wine tasting, except with tea. And the goal was to tell the difference between the high-quality tea and the other teas. And the ability to tell the difference between Honcha and Hicha was the name of the game. This type of game apparently was popular in China, and it made its way over to Japan by this period. So at a typical tea party, you'd get about 10 cups of tea, or for some of the wilder parties, up to 100 different cups of tea to taste and to guess where it came from. And these tea parties involved a variety of prizes, including things like swords decorated in gold foil, stylish tiger skin bags, fancy cloth, decorative armor, and other ridiculously extravagant goods. The parties also involved dancers, musicians, courtiers, basically hard partying, booze, gambling, that sort of thing surrounded these events. The war tale, the Taiheiki, actually talks about one such party. All of the riches went to the idlers they brought with them or to the actors from Dengaku or Sarugaku and courtesans and beautiful women who had gathered to watch. The daimyo themselves returned empty-handed. Thus, they gave no help to the poor and isolated. They offered nothing to the Buddha or to the priests. It was as if they had simply flung their gold into the mud, their jewels into a bottomless pool. This was probably war tales hyperbole, but I think you get the point. It was basically the one percenters throwing money away while the dirty-faced commoners worked their fingers to the bone in abject poverty. Of course, not all tea gatherings were wild affairs like this. Some were more muted and grounded more in the Buddhist principles than normally accompanied tea drinking. But these massive parties did happen, and were apparently pretty notorious. But these gatherings can also be credited for getting tea out of the monasteries and temples and into the teacups of regular people. Anyway, for the aristocrats, tea was just another form of entertainment. It had none of the dignity that it had in its use in the temples. But this started to change over the course of the 15th century, where even large tea gatherings started to take on a more solemn and aesthetic tone. So what exactly led to the 16th century austere and muted version of the tea ceremony? Well, it's hard to say, but the monk Musso is partially credited with the start of what would later become the tea ceremony in the early to mid-14th century, with his introduction of the tea stand as part of the ceremony and as an advisor to the Hojo regents and the first shogun, Ashikaga Takuji. So he was an influential figure in the history of tea in Zen Buddhism within the warrior class. His influence would filter down to Ashikaga Yoshimasa, who would further develop a less boisterous and more solemn version of the tea parties, utilizing the tea stand as part of the ceremony in the late 15th century. 
Many of the artistic lineages of the tea masters of the 16th century can be traced back to Yoshimasa's tea ceremonies, including Sen no Rikyu, who's probably the most notable figure in tea history and who I'll probably get to in a later podcast. But anyway, he practiced the art of tea under masters from Yoshimasa's school of tea. And going back to the transition from the solemn monastic tea practices and the wild tea parties in the secular world to the tea culture of the 16th century, from a more philosophical standpoint, it seems likely that tea culture changed in the 15th and 16th centuries mainly or at least partially in a response to the chaos and destruction of the Onin War and the ensuing mess that was the Sengoku period that followed. Basically, the development of an appreciation for simplicity. But I think there are a few things at work here. The aristocrats with their massive wealth were displaced by the growing upheaval and a more martial aristocracy. And the warrior class itself turned towards Zen Buddhism and the transitory nature of life, probably in direct response to the chaos of the times. So basically, the more solemn tea ceremony that we're more familiar with allowed the samurai a refined and austere ceremony without being too girly or indulgent, I guess. And Sen Norikyu, who I had mentioned before, had a grandson by the name of Sotan, who said, The mind of tea is precisely the mind of Zen. Whoever puts aside the mind of Zen does not have the mind of tea. And whoever does not know the flavor of Zen does not know the flavor of tea. I don't really understand what that means, but it sounds cool. Uh, I mean, you can see there, there is a direct and critical connection between Zen and tea from early on up until this point. So as far as who gets credit for developing the tea ceremony that we recognize today, you know, the, the solemn ceremony rather than the party atmosphere, I think at this point it's a jumble of confluent tea masters and influences, but like I mentioned, it seems to have all started to come together within Ashikaga Yoshimasa's school of tea. One monk who was part of this tea tradition is the 15th century monk Murata Shuko. And he's, he's a pretty interesting figure. Apparently he was kicked out of a monastery in Nara for conduct unbecoming of a monk and he became a vagabond, just kind of bumming around. And it's not really clear why he was kicked out, but it seems that it may have involved some sort of relationship with certain tea parties popular at the time that involved tea drinking and communal baths, which I'm assuming was probably considered a shady pastime for a monk. And as an aside, a shady past and a vagabond lifestyle was probably part of the reason that he eventually became a student of another vagabond monk, the Zen monk Ikkyu Sojun who is also an interesting figure and probably worthy of an entire episode on his own. But the, uh, the vagabond monk Shuko eventually found his way to Kyoto and somehow into the employ of Ashikaga Yoshimasa after his retirement as shogun. Apparently Shuko had some friends in high places and they made an introduction, and he became one of the tea masters of the shogun, or I should say the retired shogun. So as a tea master for Ashikaga Yoshimasa, he actually kind of began to develop the idea of tea masters and tea schools and tea ceremony. He's actually also credited with the, the nine-square-yard tea room to serve five or six guests. And, you know, this is in contrast to the massive tea gatherings of the past that I mentioned earlier. Murata also worked to combine Japanese and Chinese tea practices. And his students went on to continue his work of evolving the tea ceremony into the 16th century. So that's the basic history of the development of the tea ceremony. But you might be wondering, when did tea make a splash with the common folk? Well, it's not really clear when tea filtered down to the general millet grubbers, fishmongers, and dirt farmers, but it started to be given out to the masses by priests doing charity work in the mid-13th century. Basically, free tea for the poor. So this would be one way that the masses would have been introduced to tea. Another source talks about the Ochamori ceremony that was started in 1281 by the monk Eison, who put on a public celebration of the defeat of the Mongol invasions. 
the celebration worshipped Hachiman, the god of war, and served tea to the public. Aeson apparently shared tea with fellow travelers and vagrants at one point while traveling on a pilgrimage. But even still, tea culture and tea drinking was mainly hidden away in temples until about the 15th century, when temples would begin to regularly hold tea events that included the general public. And this resulted in the popularization of tea among the peasants. For example, there are records from the early 15th century of temples setting up regulations for tea vendors who set up stalls around the Kodaiji Temple in Kyoto, and records from 1423 talking about how tea was served to a massive crowd at the temple, and records from 1423 talking about how tea was served to a massive crowd at the temple, although apparently they were charged a fee for entrance. By the end of the 15th century, it was common for some temples to sell licenses for tea vendors to set up shop on and around temple grounds, which implies to me anyway that regular people were in the market to buy tea by this point. So, based on what I can tell, tea was finally a permanent fixture in Japanese culture by at least the early to mid-15th century. At this point, temples even started growing their own tea, or, or hooking up with tea suppliers and cultivators to get their hands on tea. There are tons of documents from the mid-15th century showing receipts for tea shipments and gifts of tea to temples. One receipt shows a shipment to a temple of about 9.5 pounds of dried leaves, which, based on my math, would make probably about 2,500 cups of tea. And that's just one shipment. Based on what I found, some temples were taking about 8 to 12 shipments like this a year. And that's a lot of tea. So, yeah, tea got popular and became a big business in Japan around this time. As a commodity, tea also became a popular gift, and there are records showing people gifting multiple bags of tea to temples, and also from temples and monks to others outside the temple. And as we get into the 16th century, there are surviving correspondences from samurai to and from temples gifting or asking about getting tea, and and that sort of thing, but I'll get into that when I eventually get to the next part of the tea history. But I think this gives a, a solid introduction to the tea history of Japan, at least the early history. And uh, I find it pretty interesting, and hopefully you did too, but uh, in particular, the fact that tea was brought from China to Japan and got popular for a minute, and then just completely disappeared, and then Asai comes along and starts it all up again in a parallel yet unrelated way. So it's almost like some sort of historical mystery, some ancient knowledge that was lost and then eventually rediscovered generations later. But like I said early on, it, kind of, it seems to be that tea never really got out of the temples and monasteries early on, so it never really was able to catch on with the regular people. But that's pretty much all I have for now for the early history of tea. And then uh, at some point in a future episode, which I haven't planned out yet, and I don't know exactly when this will happen, but in a future episode, I'll talk about the 16th century and not only the changes in the tea ceremony, but also sort of the politics of tea in the 16th century, because there's a lot of interesting things that went on. A lot of the warlords really got into tea in the 16th century. So at that point, I'll be talking about Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, Senno and, you know, other scions of tea culture in the 16th century but for now that's about it so hope you enjoyed it so that's all i got and uh as always i really want to extend my thanks to the supporters on patreon patreon.com slash samurai archives you guys are the one driving the podcast and i greatly appreciate the help i, I know it's no small thing to give up your hard-earned cash to help out a random history podcast and so it's definitely appreciated and i also want to give a shout out to supporter cody burks thanks for your support all right, and uh, so you can check out back episodes of the podcast and other ways you can support the podcast at samuraipodcast.com. And that aside, positive reviews with a lot of stars are always appreciated on iTunes. So that's it. See you next time. So long. That's it. Good night. Damn it, Yoshi, you're supposed to stir the tea with your right hand. <laughs>